Okay, so morning I want to begin with a question. What if you missed the most important event of your life? What if you just missed the most important events of your life? So you're accepted into college, you do well in high school, you're accepted into college, college of your dreams, right? And the fall semester starts, and you just, little, you just get busy. You miss the fall semester, and you miss the spring semester, and you miss the second year as well. You just get distracted. You meant to do it. You meant to go, but you get a little busy. What if you landed the job that you wanted, man, the job that you had trained for, and, and you couldn't wait to get started, but the first day of work, it just didn't work out for you to get there. You had things going on in the morning, got distracted, weren't able to get to that job. Or what about your wedding day? Now, that'd be a bad one to miss, wouldn't it? You planned on it. It was on your calendar. But, man, there were these things going on, right? There was a football game. Fantasy football draft was that day. I mean, why would you plan a wedding on that day? Video games with someone in China or India. You were just busy. You missed it. Or the birth of a child. It wasn't like, this is for men. This is not going to work for women, but for men, right? It wasn't like you're serving overseas. You meant to get there, but on your way, you got distracted and you missed the birth of child. Now here's another question. What if you got so busy and so distracted, so unfocused, that you missed God's best for you. You missed his best. It wasn't like you're not a Christian. You're a Christian. You're going to go to heaven. But you missed the very best that God had for you. Just never got around to it. Getting serious about your walk with Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to talk about that today. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to consider the first part. This, is a, uh, this passage contains a very difficult uh, part of Scripture, so we're going to go through it uh, pretty slowly, and we're going to work our way through it. I don't know if I'll be able to get through all of it today, but we'll get through as much as we can. And uh, what we're going to do as well is we're going to put the portion regarding chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, on a video blog, and that's going to be posted uh, tomorrow afternoon. And then you can come, and we can just begin. Let's just begin this discussion today, all right? And we can, uh, you can interact with the, with the blog, and we'll try to go back and forth on that. Now, if you do interact with the blog, uh, no dissertations, all right? Just a little 300 words or so, so we can interact together. And don't get in arguments with other people, right? Let's just figure out how we can uh, work through this passage together, all right? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it, and then we'll work through uh, these passages. The writer says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Don't, don't lay those foundations again. 
All right, the verse starts out with the word therefore, and anytime we see the word therefore, we have to say, okay, what is going to be said is based on what has said. So we've got to go back to the previous four verses. We looked at those the last time. And in those four verses, the writer said, you have become dull of hearing. I got some things to tell you. I wish I could tell you. There's some deep truths that I want to teach you about, but you become dull of hearing. And the word in Greek, dull of hearing, means no push, no urgency, no focus, um, no, 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 no effort. Another word would be a slacker. You become a slacker, the writer told the recipients of this book. You, you, you should be uh, far ahead, farther ahead than you are. You should be teachers of the word. You should be sharing with others. You should know the basics of Christianity and the basics of the gospel, and you should be sharing the basics with your family. You should be sharing them with your friends. You should be confident in what you believe, but you're not there yet. You're sucking on the bottle when you should be eating meat. And the writer says, you can't live like that. That's not the place to be. That's not what God has for you. That's not his best for you. Therefore, based on that, that you're still sucking on a bottle when you should be eating meat, therefore, the writer says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and let's go on to maturity. Let's press on. Let's leave the things behind. Not abandon, not abandon the elementary principles. These are the foundational things we build our faith upon. That's the foundation. That's important. You got to nail that down. But let's, let's leave it behind. Let's start building a building that, that matters to God. Let's leave those things and let's press on to maturity. Let's demonstrate that we're growing up, that we're off the bottle, that we can eat meat. Now, Paul says the same thing. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, right? But Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but he says what? I what? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing, I, this is the apostle Paul talking. See, we never, we never arrive. We're always in the process of maturing. Paul says, not that I consider that I've made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to press on. Yeah, I made a mistake yesterday. I sinned yesterday, but I'm going to ask God's forgiveness. I'm going to move on from that. I'm not going to let sin paralyze me. I'm going to press on to what God has for me. And then Paul says in verse 15, what? Let those who are what? Mature think this way. Let those who are eating meat think this way. Not the bottle suckers, but those who are eating meat, let them think this way. Let's press on. Let's keep going. The writer here says, let's leave those elementary principles. They're important, but we got to move on. We got things to do. We got to find the best that God has for us in our life. Now, here at the Bible Chapel, the pressing on, we would say, if you're growing in your walk with Christ, if you are mature, if you're maturing in your walk with Christ, again, we're never perfect, we're never there, but we're in the process, right? The process of spiritual maturation. Then you're going to be involved in five things. You're going to be involved in the Word of God. You're going to be reading and meditating on the Word of God at least four times a week. You cannot grow unless you have that nourishment. 
You're going to be involved in worship. You're going to worship the Lord with your life, not just on a Sunday morning singing songs and listening to a message. You're going to be doing that every day of your life, honoring God every day of your life. Word, worship, connect. You're going to be connected with other believers because you cannot live the Christian life alone. You're going to be using your gift to serve. You're going to be sharing the message. We call those the five essentials. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. Those are the things you're going to be involved in. Perfectly, no. But that's the, that's the path of your life. That's the direction you're taking. Now, to make, the, make sure the readers understood what they should move from, the writer gives six principles, six um, foundational doctrines. And he says these are great doctrines, they're, they're fine doctrines, they're foundational, but we got to move from these. And so he lists them out. There are six of them. Now, this is interesting uh, because this gives us uh, two things. It gives us an idea of what the early church would have considered the foundational doctrine. So that's pretty cool. And secondly, uh, remember, the writer is writing to Jewish Christians, and these six doctrines are all based in the Old Testament. So what the writer is saying you got these in the Old Testament. I mean, they were there. And now, here comes Jesus. Now they're completed in Jesus. So we got to take these Old Testament doctrines of Judaism, and we got to continue to grow in them because these are the Christian doctrines that we need to be looking at. So let me, let's go through them pretty quickly, all right? Here's the first one. Repentance from dead works. Dead works are the works that lead to death. They are the works of the old life. They are the works that used to, uh, used to, you, you used to uh, tell who we are. They were the things we were involved in. They were the things that characterized our life. Uh, one commentator uh, calls these dead works, he calls them a, theologic, uh, a theological shorthand of the state of the unregenerate man and his activities. It's the state of the unbeliever. Now, the early church had these writings called wasn't in scripture, but the early church had writings called the teaching of the Lord by the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. And that's a long title, right? So they shortened the title just to say the teaching. And in Greek, the word teaching is didache, and so it became known as the didache. Now, the didache was not scripture, but it was an important book in the New Testament church. In fact, some of the church fathers said it's, a, it's among the books to be read by those who newly join us. It's not scripture, but it's some good reading. And the, in the didache, it has a list of dead works. So in case anyone was confused about what a dead work was, the didache lists them out. Here's, here's the list in the didache. Murders, adult, adulteries, lust, fornication, thefts, idolatries, magic arts, sorceries, robberies, false depositions, hypocrisies, a double heart, fraud, arrogance, malice, obstinacy, covetousness, filthy language, envy, audacity, haughtiness, boastfulness, right from the dead. Okay, that, that's the dead works. In Romans, when Paul writes to the Romans, now we're talking about Scripture, Paul says, these are the things, he has a list of sin, these are the things that lead to death. We used to be slaves to those things. We're not slaves to those things anymore. So, foundational to the Christian life is repentance from these past sins. And by the way, the Christian life always starts with repentance. You cannot have a gospel, you cannot have good news without repentance. 
Repentance means I have a different mindset of my sin. It's not that I'm just sorry for it, that I'm embarrassed I got caught. But I have a different mindset. My sin is an offense against the holy God. And I understand I've offended the holy God. And I'm walking this way in my sin. And repentance says I'm turning around. I'm turning my back to my old way of life. I'm not going to be perfect. There are going to be times when I look back. But I'm going to walk now toward Christ. That's what repentance is. Repentance is taught by John the Baptist as the first step of knowing Jesus Christ. Repentance is taught by Jesus as the first step of knowing him. Repentance is taught by the apostles as the first step in having a relationship with Christ. You cannot be a believer without leaving the old way, right? And by the way, some might say, well, that sounds like works because you've got to do something in order to become a Christian. God gives us the gift of repentance. It's his gift that he gives us to open our heart and make us realize we're walking the wrong way so he can enable us to turn around and walk the right way. Acts chapter 11 verse 18 says that God granted the Gentiles, God granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. All right, once a person turns from their sins, then they need to have faith toward God, right? That's the second foundation. So there's repentance from dead works. Now you trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to have a relationship with the living God. Paul says, or, or, uh, Paul says this in Acts chapter 20. He said, I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, foundational stuff, right? Foundational things that the believer has to realize. I repent from my sins, I trust in Christ, and I walk with him. Foundational. There's some more here. Instructions about washing. Now, the Jewish people had all these rituals about washing. In fact, if you go over to Israel, we have some pictures here. This, is, uh, this shows the Qumran society. So you go outside of Israel by the Dead Sea, and you can look from this area and you can see where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But you see throughout the Qumran society, where the Qumran people lived, all these, these, these steps and holes. They were, they were ritual baths. And the people would walk down into those ritual baths. And before they sacrificed or before they did some of the Jewish ceremonial stuff, they would take a bath. Ritual baths were very important to the Jews. And Paul says, that's in the Old Testament. That's great. That was a part of the sacrificial system. But what's the ritual bath you've got to take now as a believer? Baptism. That's what you've got to do. You've got to be baptized. In the Scripture, you become a Christian, you're baptized. You become a Christian, you're baptized. That's foundational. That's not, that's not debatable. That's foundational. So Paul's just laying uh, instructions about worship. So you got repentance, you got, you got faith, you got, you got baptism, laying on of hands. Uh, in the New Testament, this was practiced uh, several ways. Sometimes uh, when, when a person trusts in Christ, Holy Spirit comes and lives within them, right then and there, right? But when a person was baptized, in the New Testament church, when a person was baptized, they would gather around them and lay, they, and lay their hands on them. And then that way, that was the symbol, just like baptism was a symbol of them coming to Christ. They'd already come to Christ, but that was the symbol. So when they laid their hands on them, laying hands on them was a symbol of being filled with the Holy Spirit, even though they'd already been filled with the Holy Spirit. It was a symbol. 
Sometimes they laid their hands on uh, people to uh, commission them to service. Uh, you can read sometimes they would lay their hands on uh, Paul and, and, and Timothy and different missionaries going out, commissioning them to service. Sometimes they were, they were um, uh, commissioned to, to different uh, aspects that God wanted them to do, to Christian ministry, right? So laying on of hands, possibly a, 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 a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So you have repentance. These are basic. Repentance, faith, baptism, the Holy Spirit, resurrection from the dead. That's the next one. Uh, foundation to the Christian faith is that we have this certainty that when we pass from this life, we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. And then one day, our body's going to be raised from the dead. Scripture talks about that throughout the New Testament. That's foundational to the Christian life. And we know that because Jesus himself, our, the forerunner of our faith, he was raised, the pioneer of our faith, he was raised from the dead. And then there's the final judgment. Scripture talks about this throughout, right? There's the, for the believer, there's the, the, uh, the bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. That's not for heaven or hell. That's for rewards or not so many rewards, right? That's before Christ. That's before our Savior. Then the other judgment is called the great white throne judgment, and you don't want to be there. That's for hell. That's the final judgment. So these are basic. These are basic principles. You got repentance. You got faith. You got baptism. You got the Holy Spirit. You got the final resurrection. You got judgment. Those are basic, basic principles. And now the writer says, you got those things down. They're foundational. Now, leave them. Don't abandon them, but leave them and begin to grow. You can't stay like a child. You can't stay sucking a bottle. Now there's meat. You got to grow in your relationship with Christ. These are foundational. So Laura and I never built a house. Some of you have. And I know when you build a house, you know, you get your plot of ground. It's cool. It's got trees and stuff on it. And they come and they take down the trees that you want taken down and they get their plot of ground and then they do the groundwork and what's the next thing they do? They put the foundation down, right? They put those forms down and you go and you see, man, that's going to be our house. That's cool. That's what it's going to look like. And then they pour the concrete, right? And then you got that foundation there. And now you can actually walk around and you know, this is going to be a living room. This is going to be the kitchen. This is going to be the bedroom. This is cool. This is the foundation. So what if you're building a house and they get the foundation done and you go back a week later and they're still working on the foundation? And you say, what are you doing? And they say, well, foundation's important. We're still working on it. And you go back a week later and they're still working on the foundation. And you go back a week later and they're still working on the foundation. By this time, you're a little irritated, aren't you? And you're going to say, I'm glad you care so much about the foundation. That's great. It's time to start building the walls. We've got to get this house up out of the ground. We've got to build the walls, and we've got to get them in, boxed in, and we've got to get a roof on there. We've got to build the house. That's what this writer is saying to the people and whoever he's writing to. We don't know who he's writing to, right? You've got the foundation. That's perfect. Now you've got to build a house. Now you've got you to move forward to do the things that God's calling you to do. You can't miss God's best for you. And you're going to miss it if you just stay down here on the foundational things. Now we could talk about that regarding how that applies to believers today. So many doctrines. 
that believers will argue about and write back and forth about and have problems about. And it's like God saying, man, move on from that. And it's not worth being the synchronon of your Christian life. There are some people that will hold on to a doctrine or hold on to a, a type of uh, a belief system. And that's all they talk about. But they never grow from that. So Roger's saying, man, it's time to grow up. Build the house. Move from the, doc, move from the foundation. All right. Now we get into challenging, probably the, probably the most difficult passage in Scripture. So we're going to go through it slowly, all right? See if we can understand this passage. Look at verse um, 4. <clears throat> The writer says, all right, got to move on. Got to leave the, these foundational truths. And you got to grow up to maturity for, here's the reason, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come and then have fallen away. All those things have happened to them and then they've fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What in the world does that mean? It's impossible for someone who has experienced all these things and then fallen away to restore them to repentance because they are, they are re-crucifying the Son of God. All right, so let's just work our way through this. There are a lot of people who say, this is it. This is the passage that shows a person can lose their salvation. They had all these things. They fell away, can't be restored again. That's the proof. But here's the problem. You always interpret an obscure passage or a difficult passage by, a clear, by clear passages. And how many passages are there that reminds us and tells us that you, once you are a child of God, you will forever be. I hold you in my hand. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. John 10. Romans chapter 8. Uh, nothing can separate you from, from my love. The whole, all of Scripture talks about that. So there's a challenge. Others say, well, the writer is, is writing this to Christians who are close to being a Christian, but they're not really a Christian. They've kind of, you know, they, they, they experienced some cool things as they sung the songs and, you know, interacted with other believers, but they're, they weren't really a Christian. That's what he's talking about. Well, that's a problem because it says if this person, if they were almost a Christian, then, then, they, then they leave, right? Then they could never become a Christian again. So that like, that's like the unpardonable sin. So what, well, like Peter, right? Peter denied Christ, but Jesus forgave him. So that's difficult. Others say it's hypothetical. He's just, he's just putting out this hypothetical thing to, to emphasize what you can't do. All right? So let's work through it. What, what does it mean? 
I believe that the writer is addressing genuine believers. Now, certainly in that group, there would have been some that weren't, for sure. It's like there are some here today who aren't believers. But the writer's aiming this toward genuine believers. And the reason I say that is these four descriptions are descriptions not for people who are close to becoming a Christian, but for people who are, who are a Christian. Let's look at them. Okay. In the case of those, so now we're talking about these descriptions. In the case of those who have been enlightened, that is a word that describes the experience of true salvation. When we find a word in Scripture, we want to go to other places of Scripture and see how it's used, right? So we go over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. The writer's going to use that same word. He says, but recall the former days when after you were what? Enlightened. After you became a Christian, after you had trusted in Christ, you were enlightened. I won't take time to read it, but 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, talks about the light of Christ and the whole aspect of, of the light of Christ and, and having the light of Christ shine in us and through us and being lights to the world, being enlightened. That is describing a true believer. No one else in Scripture. Secondly, they have tasted, they have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what could the heavenly gift be? It's got to be salvation, right? For a grace you're saved by faith, not of yourself, not that, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So we're talking about the gift of salvation, and these people have tasted it. Now that same word tasted, it's going to be used later here, but it's used of Jesus in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 2 when it says Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus sampled death or he kind of hung around death. He experienced death. He, he took it on. So this doesn't describe a, someone who's just sampling Christianity. Come on, almost Christians. They took it on. They tasted the heavenly gift. It's theirs. They've experienced it. That's what the word means, to experience, focusing on personal involvement. They also, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They, uh, the word share means to come to acquire or experience a state. The same word is used in uh, 1 John chapter uh, 1, verse 14, when it says uh, Jesus became, sometimes it's translated became, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus became flesh. He didn't kind of sample it. He, be, he was fully God, fully man. So, so they shared in the Holy Spirit. They, they have, they, the Spirit indwells them. They have experienced the Spirit. And here's that word again, tasted. They experienced, they experienced the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They, they, they've seen God's work in their life. They've seen his, his power in their life. They've experienced the goodness of the word of God. Remember back in chapter 4, the writer said, for the word of God is what? It's living 
and it's active and it's, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, that's powerful stuff right there. The Word of God is powerful. It is good to us. It, it tells us what path to be on. It tells us when we get off that path. It tells us how to get back on the right path, and it tells us how to stay on the right path. It's powerful. It convicts us. It challenges us when we're in it. So these people have experienced the Word of God. So here are, I believe, true believers. They have been enlightened. They have, they've, they've uh, tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the Word of God and God's power. And now we come to a challenging verse, verse 6. So it's impossible the writer says, for these genuine believers, and then, and then they have all these things, and then they fall away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So we've got to figure out what this word fall away means. They have fallen away. All right. So as I said earlier, when you see a word in Scripture, right, to understand what it means, you want to go see how the writer used it somewhere else. Well, we've got a problem with this word because this is the only place it's used in the New Testament. The only place it's used. So what do you do now? So now you go back to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. As the Greek culture started taking over, the, um, he, the, the Jewish people said, Here's the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and a lot, of our, a lot of Jews don't know Hebrew anymore. So the Greek culture's taking over. They know the Greek language. So we're going to take the Old Testament from Hebrew and translate it into Greek so they can read it. That's called the Septuagint. And so now, how is this same word fallen away used in the Septuagint? It's used six times there, six, six times. And uh, once in the book of Esther and five times in the book of Ezekiel. So let me just give you a couple examples from Ezekiel. Son of man, when the land sins against me, here's the word, by acting faithlessly, there's that word, fallen away, it's translated in the Hebrew, I will stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it off from man and beast. So act faithlessly doesn't mean apostasy. It doesn't mean you've rejected the faith. It doesn't mean you've moved away from the faith. You've turned your back on God. It means you've acted faithlessly. You may be acting like a non-believer. You're still a believer. Look at another one, Ezekiel 15.8. And I will make the land desolate because they have what? Acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. In Ezekiel 18 Verse 24, it describes a righteous man who turns from his righteousness and he acts unfaithfully or faithlessly and we see the consequences for his sin. So the, it's the, the, the Greek is a translation of a Hebrew word that means to sin or act unfaithfully. It does not indicate apostasy like you jettison the faith and you're gone. You may stay away from the Lord a long time. There are going to be consequences. This is serious stuff. But it doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. I don't think. It means you've acted unfaithfully. But it doesn't mean it's irredeemable. So what is the writer saying here? 
If a person has acted unfaithfully, right? They're a believer, they're a genuine believer. They've acted unfaithfully. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Although it's not apostasy, it's serious stuff. And the writer's saying they're crucifying the Son of God again. Now, what's that mean? You can't re-crucify Jesus. The writer is saying that these Christians who are acting unfit, who never grew up, right? This is in the context of you're still sucking on the bottle. They're acting unfaithfully. There's going to be some consequences, but but they're believers, but it's like they're standing in the crowd that crucified Jesus. They're believers, but it's like they're standing with with those who put Jesus on the cross and put him to death. They're standing with those who crucified Jesus. It's as if they're crucifying Jesus again by holding him up to contempt. All right, now what's it mean? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Notice it doesn't say it's impossible to restore them again to salvation because once a person's a believer, they're going to be a believer, right? But to restore them to repentance. Let's think about that. In these warnings, the writer... Uh, normally goes back and he uses an Old Testament example. And most commentators believe that with the word enlightened and sharing in the Holy Spirit and tasted uh, the the experience of the Christian life and the word of God, they believe that is a reference back to Numbers chapter 14, Kadesh Barnea, when the children of Israel were in the desert. Let's just think about that. The children of Israel had been slaves, right? And God freed them. So they're now with Moses. They were slaves, and now they are free. They're in the desert, and God's providing them everything they need. And it's time to go to the promised land. They send 12 spies to the promised land. Remember the story? And the spies come back and they say, man, that is a tremendous land. It is flowing with milk and honey. And they brought back a bunch of grapes. They were so heavy they had to carry them on poles. Guy had to get on either end and carry these big old grapes on poles. And these are some serious grapes. Beautiful land. But 10 people said what? There are also giants in the land, and there's no way we can take it. It's a great land. We'll give you that. But there's no way we can take it. Joshua and Caleb said, I don't care if there are giants in the land. I care if the people are big and strong. doesn't matter. Who's on our side? God's on our side. He's unstoppable. But the people went with the majority report and said, we're not going to go. We can't go. We've been freed from slavery. We're Israelites, but we're not going to go to the promised land. Caleb and Joshua said, we got to go, we got to go. No, we're not going to go. And because of that, God said, fine. You guys are going to be wandering in the desert for the next 38 years until another, another generation grows up. So here we have the story of those who are wandering in the desert. They acted unfaithfully. And God said, I'm not going to allow you to be restored to repentance. You're going to stay out here in the desert. Now, 
Do you think there were believers in that group? Yeah. But they never got to the promised land. They went to heaven, but they never got to see what God had for them, the best that he had for them. They went to heaven, but they never got to cross the Jordan into the promised land. By the way, even Moses didn't get to go. You remember that story? Moses was leading the people. It's just about, we're, we're pro, they're probably in the last, at least the last two years, maybe the last year. They're about ready to go. And the people are grumbling again, and, and there's a rock, and Moses, God says, speak to the rock, and water's gonna come out of it. And Moses was so irritated with the people that he took his, his staff, and he struck the rock twice, and water came out, but the people thought Moses did it, right? And God said, because you did not honor me, in front of the people, you don't get to lead them into the promised land. Now you think, wait a second, you think Moses went to heaven? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. But he didn't get to the promised land. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, it says that, that, that Moses pleaded with God, God, please let me go. Man, we're almost there. Let me take him in. And in Deuteronomy chapter 3, it says, God said to Moses, enough from you. Do not speak about this matter again. I don't have time, I don't have time to do this, but uh, so, just jot down Psalm 78, 34 through 39. By the way, if you want to see a history of, of Israel all the way to David, it's Psalm 78. It's the history of Israel. And Psalm 78, 34 through 39 tells about this, this period of time when they, when they acted unfaithfully. And it says God forgave them. God redeemed them. But there were consequences to that. So I believe that's what this passage is talking about. We're going to have to wrap this up and I'll continue next week. But that's what this passage is talking about. You can be a believer, enlightened, got the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God. You got all that. And still go to heaven, but miss God's what? His best for you. Because you never, never got around to getting serious about your walk. You're too busy with work. Got around, I can't serve. I'm busy with work. I can't read scripture. I got to get up too early. Can't be serious about really getting into God's word. You don't know how busy I am. And there'll be a time when God says, okay, fine. You're going to be with me in heaven. But uh, go on your merry way. And next time we'll talk about rewards because there's going to be a time, remember? The great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there. There's no reward there. But the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that's where the rewards are given out. First or second uh, Corinthians 5. They're going to be rewards. I don't know exactly how all that works. There'll be rewards in heaven. So this person's going to stand before Christ and say, you know what? Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I just didn't really get around to serving you like I should have. I'm going to go to heaven. Thanks for that. But I really didn't get around. I, was un I acted unfaithfully. That's what I believe this verse is about. Missing God's best.